Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, we've come a long way, but there's a long way to go, is a familiar, facile framing that robs urgency from fights for justice. It's the frame that tends to dominate annual journalistic acknowledgement of the Americans with Disabilities Act, passed 33 years ago in late July. Like Black History Month, the ADA anniversary is a peg. It's just an opportunity for journalists to offer information and insight on issues that they might not have felt there was space for throughout the year. As depressing as that is, media coverage of the date often doesn't even rise to the occasion. You wouldn't guess, for example, from elite media's afterthought approach that some one in four people in this country have some type of disability, or that it's one group that any of us could join at any moment. Likewise, you might not understand that the ADA didn't call for curb cuts at every corner, but for an end to persistent discrimination in such critical areas as employment, housing, public accommodations, education, transportation, communication, recreation, institutionalization, health services, voting, and access to public services. Nothing less than the maximal integration of disabled people into community and into political life. You know, like people. And if that's the story, well, it's clear that it demands all kinds of attention every day not a once-a-year story that pats us all on the back about how far we've come. We talk about that this week with Casey Amon-Wilson, co-founder and chief operating officer of New Disabled South. That's coming up, but first we'll take a quick look back at some recent press. The devastating wildfires that tore across Maui in early August were covered dramatically, especially visually, by U.S. news media. Words like war zone and apocalyptic were used. But as Robin Anderson notes for an upcoming piece for FAIR.org, less heard were words like climate disruption and even much less fossil fuels. Instead, reports like one in the Washington Post forthrightly cited risk factors like, quote, months of drought, low humidity, and high winds, close quote, without pursuing questions about those phenomena to their answerable and actionable roots. A New York Times piece stepped on the accountability question, telling readers, quote, it's difficult to attribute any single hurricane to climate change. It can be hard to fault corporate media for ignoring the climate crisis. There is, after all, reporting that says weird, devastating weather is happening. And there's reporting that says Continued fossil fuel-driven climate disruption is having predicted impacts on global temperatures. There is also even reporting about politicians' reliance on funding from fossil fuel companies. 
What there is is a resistance unto refusal to connecting those dots. Right now, the levers Rebecca Burns is reporting that oil and industry lobbying groups in California are working fervently but secretly to block important legislation about carbon emissions. And, and here's where the reporting would come in, it's about blocking regulation by blocking public knowledge. The bill is just one of simple transparency, letting the public know what is being done in our name, a phrase that never seems to capture elite media, but also what's being done in our money, which seems to interest them all the time. The legislation would require thousands of large companies doing business in California to fully disclose their carbon emissions, including all of those companies who have built PR campaigns around the idea of net zero. So far this year, industry opponents acknowledge spending some $7 million on state lobbying on this climate disclosure bill. And it's not just the oil and gas companies that you might expect. And then again, here is where informative reporting would come in, because it's also cement and asphalt companies whose processes, Burns reports, count for more global emissions than airline travel, close quote. And then it's Blue Diamond Almond Growers and Coca-Cola and Costco and In-N-Out Burger, Pepsi, Rite Aid, and on and on. Entities that, if this bill would go through, would have to actually acknowledge, no matter the aspirations that they put on their PR page, the actual carbon emissions across their whole production chain. And in still other news... Young people in Montana said the obvious thing, that they were being denied their right to live, essentially, by the conscious actions of environment destroyers. That they, quote, have been and will continue to be harmed by the dangerous impacts of fossil fuels and the climate crisis, close quote. Well, Held versus Montana is not the first desperate legal gasp of young people on behalf of their future, but it seems to be the first case to reach a trial. And Judge Kathy Seeley has declared that Montana's fossil fuel-promoting laws are unconstitutional, and she's enjoined their implementation. Among the policies that the challengers were targeting was a provision in the Montana Environmental Policy Act that was going to bar the state from considering how its energy economy would impact climate change. This year, state lawmakers amended the provision to specifically ban the state from considering greenhouse gas emissions in their environmental reviews for new energy projects. Well, Judge Seeley has ruled that provision unconstitutional. And in still other news, the Biden Department of Justice has recently asserted, in the context of another youth-brought lawsuit, that there is, quote, no constitutional right to a stable climate system, close quote. The notion that children should have a world they can survive, the Biden DOJ says, is nothing like any fundamental right ever recognized by the Supreme Court. So here are a number of news events related to the climate crisis and life and children and cronyism 
and human rights and political payoffs and powerlessness. And here's where we need journalism to not just report those various things happening, but to connect the dots between them. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. July 26th marked the 33rd anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act. The 1990 law intended to provide clear, strong, consistent, enforceable standards addressing discrimination against individuals with disabilities. The occasion connected with some serious, multi-layered stories, including news of a critical ruling that the state of Florida has been violating the rights of children with complex medical needs by keeping them institutionalized when they could be living in community. A sizable admixture of stories, though, were reports on buildings or spaces coming into compliance with the ADA, as though complying with a 33-year-old law was a feel-good story. And despite a relative absence of feel-bad stories about decades of noncompliance, but more What is lost when the public conversation around disability justice revolves around the ins and outs of abiding by law rather than a bigger, deeper vision of a world we can all live in? Casey Amon Wilson is co-founder and chief operating officer of New Disabled South. She joins us now by phone from Tampa, Florida. Welcome to Counterspin, Casey Amon Wilson. Thanks so much for having me, Janine. Well, in his official proclamation around the ADA's anniversary, Joe Biden said the sort of thing politicians say. Um, Quote, it is hard for younger generations to imagine a world without the ADA. But before it existed, if you were disabled, stores could turn you away and employers could refuse to hire you. Transit was largely inaccessible. Close quote. Now he goes on to note ways that disabled people are still discriminated against, but that lead, that opening, reflects the way many media certainly talk about the ADA, that it was sort of a night to day and now we just need to incrementally build on it. Um, But it doesn't require undermining the work that went into the ADA to suggest, as you do in a recent piece for In These Times, that that is maybe just not the most useful way of thinking about that act. Yeah. Well, it's the same. To me, it's as ridiculous as, you know, the, the, the frame we hear like, oh, because we had a black president and Barack Obama, somehow we're in a post-racial society or racism is over. And no social movement is uh, a, a victory, whether minor or major, an indicator that um, there need be no additional social movement (laughs) or political movement for that matter. And when we're talking about disability, disability rights, disability access, certainly disability justice, you know, so much of the real lived experiences of disabled people uh, contradicts a lot of President Biden's opening statements. For example, when you talk about, couldn't imagine a world where there were inaccessible public transit. There's still inaccessible public transit for a majority of disabled people. And unless you can afford and you're in the privileged few who can afford 
um, paratransit services where they're accessible, where you live, things like even as basic as access to sidewalks is still a major issue. We're dealing with so many infrastructure issues in this country. And as we know, any issue doubly or triply impacts disabled people. Well, what did the ADA do? I'll attempt uh, my best brief answer of that. But as, the title, as the title of my piece um, at, uh, for In These Times stated, the ADA is the floor, not the ceiling. Right. So it established, similar to the Civil Rights Act, similar to the Voting Rights Act, right, it, it got the issue on the map, whereas before, um, you know, one thing I, you know, that's a little bit more accurate in President Biden's remarks are, yes, it was not codified in law. Right. Uh, anti-discrimination. But as, as anyone, as any, you know, most regular citizens, I think, and certainly those of us who are directly impacted by any of the laws I just named, um, or any law for that matter, law has to be enforced, right? Law, law is only as good as the enforcement of the law, as the awareness of the law. There's still, you know, we're still fighting uh, battles across this country um, as it relates to uh, the physical accessibility of buildings and spaces. Um, certainly other forms of accessibility now are, are that are salient, such as digital accessibility. Mm-hmm. And of course, the ADA doesn't touch on any of those things, right? Or, or even uh, touched the day-to-day lived experiences of many disabled people. So to answer the question briefly, again, it's a starting point. It's, it's a, a good step a huge step, you know, again, not to discredit any of the work that the the work that went into getting this law passed, but it's a starting point. And the hope and dream uh, was never that that be the end of the road, uh, but that we would continue working as a country on materially improving the lives and of, of disabled people day to day. And unfortunately, a lot of that work is just not happening. Well, in terms of one of the many things that that exist to be changed, that the law has not changed, I was shocked to learn that something as, I mean, I guess I wasn't surprised, but that polling places, which are often in schools or older buildings, but the idea that the inaccessibility of places to vote was kind of not a major issue, you know, mm-hmm. that that was sort of a, a, a afterthought for media. And it was kind of like, yeah, sure, you have the right to vote, you just can't exercise it. Mm-hmm. That seems to be one of the many undercovered or underexplored aspects here. Oh, my gosh, I mean, we could talk for hours about this. And my partner and co-founder, Dom, uh, he is really uh, an expert when it comes to um, navigating the, the political realities and inaccessibility of voting. Um, but because of what you've named, I mean, this is a key part of our work at New Disabled South and New Disabled South Rising, our C4 arm, is uh, working to, A, change media narratives around disabled people. Disabled people want to vote, have a right to vote, and should be allowed to vote. We've seen and we continue to see a spate of laws uh, being passed across counties, across states, making it difficult, more difficult to access the ballot box. And we know things like that. For example, um, getting rid of drop boxes, ballot Mm -hmm. boxes. I I could spew off some statistics, but I'll save that for another time. But when you do that, you are not only disenfranchising effectively 
large portions of people of color, of people who live in rural areas, but disabled people. And that's not talked about. Um, and so for this reason, you know, one of the key bodies of work that we are focusing on is passing Disabled Voter Bill of Rights in five states over the next five years. We want things like a guaranteed minimum number of accessible voting machines at every polling place. We want things like the right to turn in a completed absentee ballot at any polling location or to be able to mail it in without having to purchase a stamp. You know, these things that sound very basic in conversation like the one you and I are having, but when you have laws that have been passed to criminalize some of these things, literally making it a felony, it effectively continues to disenfranchise uh, disabled people. And we're not even yet talking about the very real barriers of transportation, being able to read materials and make sure they're in a plain language and in a way that we can understand. So things like the right to assistance with voting and more. And it always is shocking to me that even in, even to the extent that journalists might say, oh, yes, these polling places are inaccessible, I don't see the corollary piece where they say what happens when we don't have the voices of disabled people in the vote. You know, what does it mean to Mm -hmm. disenfranchise an entire community, which, as you are saying, is an intersectional community, you know, so it's almost like it's just a story about access, about curb cuts and not about the political and social and economic and all of the impacts that come from cutting off the franchise. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's why we can't stop at conversations like law or or the ADA. We have to expand the conversation to address the intersecting realities and the intersecting barriers that disabled people are facing across this country. Going into this next election year, we are poised to um, do some very powerful work. And first among that is letting people know And this goes for progressive media outlets, progressive organizations, and, of course, folks on the other side alike, that disabled people are a voting bloc. We are engaged in in politics and the issues that directly affect us. And part of our work at New Disabled South is making sure that our community is educated about the policies, the laws, all of the things that are impacting us in our lived experiences day to day, and sharing information power and resources so that we can continue to organize ourselves in increasingly effective ways so that our voices can be heard and we can start to see real change. Well, I'm going to bring you back to media coverage in just a second, but I just wanted to say the group is New Disabled South. The South is home to not just decades worth, but much present day, critical, deep, important organizing. Mm. And I wonder if you could speak to a moment about the particular meaning of the of the regionality of what you're doing. We know that many of this country's disabled people are concentrated in the South. But we also know that the reality of when we talk about policies, laws, uh, culture that is harmful to disabled people, a lot of that is concentrated in the South. A majority of States that have yet to expand Medicaid coverage, for example, Mm -hmm. are in the South. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the South has this unfortunate stigma, stereotypes, and and reality of being um, a place that's less progressive, less quick to move. Um, But I want to be clear, you know, this is not because of the people Mm -hmm. in the South. 
right, that uh, that we are any less committed to progressive change. On the contrary, we know with the South being the cradle of the civil rights movement, the birthplace of civil rights, and, and so many of those uh, of the change we've seen in this country originating in the South, we have to do a better job of changing the narrative and also the accountability piece. Um, and that is why we're doing our work. We decided, you know, we're all from the South, of the South, and this is a home for us. Dom specifically, Dom and I both, we have concentrated our political work, organizing work, advocacy work on Southern communities. Um, and we know that there's immense power here. And part of what we're working to do is eliminate the barriers to mobilizing people who are equally as passionate about these issues so that, again, as I said, we can start to see real change. And we're not willing to wait another 10 years for it. Mm -hmm. we, want that, we want that change in our lifetime. We need that change now. People are uh, literally perishing every day in the face of these laws and policies. As you mentioned at the introduction, kids are, are, are languishing in uh, nursing homes. Um, and institutions, they, these are real life issues that are um, happening across the South every single day. And we are here to help mobilize our community, policymakers, change makers, especially those in progressive space, to know if you're talking about social justice issues, progressive issues, political issues, you need to be centering disability justice as part of that conversation. Well, and we know that, uh, first of all, it's not just a matter in terms of journalists, of media doing more stories that are centered on disabled people. It's about finding the disabled people who are already in every story that you're doing, right? You're, you're talking about police violence. You're talking about voting. You're talking about housing. All of that is a disability rights story. So thoughts about media coverage. Yeah, I mean, I think you've 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 said um, some great things about just it's a real call to action. Um, you know, we one of our um, funders is New Media Ventures, and early on we spoke about centering a focus to change media narratives. So much of what uh, is covered when it comes to disabled people or the frame is one of fear or pity, mm -hmm. right? Um, which is also why we focus on disability justice and not simply disability rights. Um, or, or even advocacy, which often centers a medical model and, you know, what we call inspiration porn, right? Disabled people are whole people, and we, we need to see the media focusing on stories that address that reality. And like you said, and I just, I've never heard it said that way before, so I'm going to steal it, but it's a matter of finding the disabled people who are already in the stories. You know, nearly half of people killed by police in the United States have a disability. Um, when you talk about the reform, you know, reform or the criminal industrial complex, the prison industrial complex, how often are, are we centering the lived experiences of the reality of the disabled people in those stories? Very rarely, which is why when I name statistics like that, or the fact that 55% of Black disabled men have been arrested at least once by the time they're 28, people ooh and ah, like, wow, I had no idea. And I could go on, of course, right? And mm -hmm. so it's a matter of, again, shining a light on the fact that disabled people are people and we exist as part of every community that that is that discussion in, in any story.
that needs to be covered. Absolutely. Well, I also wanted to say, you know, um, as as we both know, so many stories about the ADA, for example, are about the difficulties of complying with the ADA. And then there's the whole other layer of stories about the greedy lawyers who are fighting for compliance just to shake down small business owners, you know. And we do see stories about the harms of inaccessibility. But what I want to say is I feel like we virtually never hear about the beauty of universal access, you know, Mm -hmm. the positive vision of what a world could look like. It's all kind of like a fight between disabled people who want access and businesses Mm -hmm. who, oh, my God, it costs a lot to provide access. Mm -hmm. Where's the vision? Where's the vision of a world that could include all of us, if that's not too big a question for you? Oh, gosh. (laughs) Ooh, that is a that's a big question. But you know, it's uh, yeah. But yeah, I mean, you speak to what you speak to is a lack of imagination that plagues the effectiveness of any of our movements, right? It, you know, we we create these false dichotomies, these binaries, these either ors, and we don't come to the table um, with the view of collective liberation, quite frankly, of what is possible. And the reality that if it's good for disabled people, it's good for everybody, you know, Um, not commodifying human bodies and extracting labor and disabling people in warehouse conditions to avoid naming any particular uh, companies (laughs) that are some of the largest employers in America. Um, (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, that is beneficial for everybody. And it speaks also to the type of work that you all do at, at fair.org, right, is we know that we need reform, for lack of a better word, uh, in terms of the media, right? Because so much of what is covered is the negative, is the fight, is the drama. Instead of shining a light on the progress, and like you said, how is this beneficial for everybody. (laughs) And that is how we create buy-in. So getting the media and progressive media outlets, folks who are, have the power uh, to tell the story, to shift the narrative, uh, to focus more on the ways in which accessibility is beneficial for all of us, um, not just disabled people, not coming from a framework of, of pity or inspiration or even from a moral or ethical, you know, the hearts and minds approach. It's common sense, good policy, and it's the foundation of democracy. And I think we need to be talking more about those things. We've been speaking with Casey Amon Wilson, co-founder and COO of New Disabled South, online at newdisabledsouth.org. Her piece, The ADA is the Floor, Not the Ceiling, We Need More, can also be found at inthesetimes.com. Thank you so much, Casey Amon Wilson, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you, Janine. It's been an honor. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on our website, FAIR.org. The show is engineered by Riley Bear. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.